This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to our annual Faith and Reason lecture um, with Jeannie Schindler, um, who sadly is leaving our department this year. Uh, to introduce Jean, oh, and afterwards, this is very important. After the talk, there will be desserts cooked by the humanities faculty. It's always a big event, so stay for cookies and lemon bars and madeleines and all sorts of good things. Um, we have Rachel Golgowski, one of our students here, to introduce Dr. Schindler. Thank you, Dr. Hirschfeld. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you tonight my mentor and our speaker tonight, Dr. Jeannie Schindler. Dr. Schindler is an associate professor in the Department of Humanities and an affiliate professor at the School of Law here at Villanova University. She received her PhD in government from the University of Notre Dame in 2000 and taught at Pepperdine University for several years before joining the Villanova faculty in 2004. Professor Schindler's intellectual interests are interdisciplinary, integrating philosophical and theological concerns with her primary interest in political science. She has lectured and published in a variety of areas, including Catholic social thought, democratic theory, virtue ethics, and faith and learning. Her most recent major publication is an edited volume on Christianity and civil society, Catholic and neo-Calvinist perspectives. She has also co-edited <coughs> co with her husband, Professor David Schindler, an anthology of the work on German professor, philo, philo, philosopher, excuse me, Robert Speyman. It will be published by Oxford University Press in the fall. She and Dr. Schindler have three small children, David, John, and Ava. While we are happy that Dr. Schindler, Schindler will be enjoying her time teaching new students next year, her very own children, her Villanova family will certainly miss her in the meantime. At this time, I'd like to invite Dr. Schindler up to the podium to give her lecture entitled Marriage and the Meaning of the Body. Thank you. I wonder what my cats will be at the end of next semester. <laughs> Big zero for preparation on the ABCs, no, no advanced prep. Let me first thank Kevin Hughes and my colleagues in the Humanities Department for inviting me to deliver this lecture. Mary Hirschfeld for coordinating it and Marie Kelly for doing so much of the planning for this event, including printing out my talk in 20-point font. Okay. I'm 44 years old, 20-point font. <clears throat> it's a privilege to speak to you tonight. When I first selected marriage and the meaning of the body as tonight's topic, an old New Yorker cartoon immediately came to mind. It featured two praying mantises, the insects, a male and a female. The male is decapitated. The female has crossed arms and a stern look. The caption says, you slept with her, didn't you? <laughs> ah, yes, the body has a meaning, at least for praying mantises. The cartoon wouldn't be funny if it didn't. The premise behind tonight's lecture is that the human body also has a meaning, hopefully a more optimistic one. I'd like to explore the question of what that meaning might be in the context of two currently contested questions that I think are substantially related namely contraception, recently made the subject of public awareness in light of the Obama administration's HHS mandate, and same-sex marriage under consideration this very day by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
But I'd like to begin my inquiry with a brief video clip. I can't tell you how contrary this is to my nature. I, we haven't had a TV since 1986. Uh, so I'm gonna, I, and I've never used a video clip in any lecture. So let me see if this works. Uh, it's an ad for a newly developed form of the birth control pill called Seasonique. Let's watch. Who says all birth control pills have to be the same? Who says? Who says you have to have 12 periods a year on the pill? Who says? Did you know? Did you know? Did you know that when you're on a birth control pill, there is no medical need to have a monthly period? Like other birth control pills, Seasonique is 99% effective and you take it every day. But instead of getting your period every month, you get it every three months. That's four periods a year. My doctor told me I'm more likely to have bleeding or spotting between periods. This can be slight to a flow like a regular period and should decrease over time. Like other birth control pills, prescription Seasonique has serious risks, including blood clot, stroke, and heart attack. Smoking increases these risks, especially if you're over 35. If you've ever had any of these conditions, certain cancers, or if you could be pregnant, you should not take the pill. The pill does not protect against HIV or STDs. Get all the facts at Seasonique.com. Who says that time of the month has to be every month? Who says? Who? Who? Repunctuate your life with fewer periods. Ask for Seasonique. I first saw this ad while pregnant with our third child. I hadn't heard of Seasonique. I was in the waiting room. <laughs> I was in the waiting room of my obstetrician's office, and my attention was drawn to the television by the music and colorful images on the screen. But it was sparked, especially, I think, by the commercial's first words. Who says? Or in the defiant tone of the actresses, who says? I found the ad at once comical and curious. Comical, unintentionally so, because the tone of indignation struck by the hip and sassy gals struck me as so misplaced. Who says I have to have a period 12 times a year? I don't know, the FDA? Um, the, the military industrial complex? The Taliban? Uh, it wasn't a question I ever thought about. <laughs> um, more seriously though, I found that tone of indignation and defiance curious, since it suggests that women perceive their own fertility cycle as a burdensome yoke to be cast off, an undue and meaningless imposition. Recall the ad's insistence that there is no medical need for, for regular menstruation. Seasonique, it seems to me, constructs a problem with respect to the physical order that is analogous to the problem of heteronomy in the moral order. When we are faced with heteronomy, that is, hetero or other and nomos law, we are subject to the law of another. We are imposed upon from the outside and our freedom is curtailed. So to take a straightforward example, the arbitrary decrees of an authoritarian regime would pose a problem of this sort. Or my mother's regulations about virtually anything when I was a teenager. <laughs> and that really was a case of heteronomy. And, and she has a Midwestern accent, which made it all the more, you know, Jean Deere, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> that that's not, right, in a Kantian sense, that's not an expression of freedom. <laughs> what, what applies to the world of politics in this example applies analogously to the body and its rhythms in the season eight commercial. The ad suggests that woman is subject to the will of something extraneous in an important respect, extraneous to her, which evokes a sense of alienation. 
If the citizen under a dictator endures a heteronomy from above, Cezanique is identifying a heteronomy from below, if you will, which is apt to be especially irksome, even insulting, insofar as it springs from mere biology, which in the terms of the ad lacks intelligent purpose. Right? There's no need for a period. How we arrived at a point culturally where Madison Avenue could assume that American women would resonate with Cezanique's assumptions has to do in good measure with the fate of the concept of nature in the modern period. No pun intended. <laughs> German philosopher Robert Spemann helpfully elucidates this point. By way of a brief summary, Spemann notes that classical and Christian thinkers alike perceived nature as an intelligible, teleologically structured order, composed of beings, fuse anta, possessing an independent reality, a Zelpstein, as uh, Schwemann would put it. Natural beings in this account have what he calls an internal principle of species-specific motion. That is, an imminent purposefulness or direction toward a telos. And it is only in light of this telos that one can make sound evaluations of the being in question. For instance, we are able to distinguish improvements from deteriorations, and thus to call them instances of progress, only because the structure of the existing thing on which improvements are being made is constituted teleologically, right? Is it getting closer to that end or not? And because this teleological constitution provides a solid criterion that allows us to tell when the thing is getting better and when it is getting worse, human beings and the non-human world in this vision were ontologically connected. Though man enjoyed a unique status in the order of being, he nevertheless perceived himself as a part of nature and understood natural processes as analogous to human actions. But the Enlightenment effected a radical break from classical and Christian metaphysics and natural philosophy. Thinkers like Hobbes are paradigmatic on this score. Uh, my students in politics and human nature can take a little nap in this section. We just covered this. Or maybe they could continue the nap that they began at 2.30. <laughs> Rodrigo. <laughs> a materialist, he denies the existence of an immaterial soul and offers a mechanistic model for understanding the human, a model drawn, drawn directly from his understanding of nature. For Hobbes, nature was non-teleological, comprised of agglomeration of small bits of matter, subject to what Spemann calls a mechanistic parallelogram of forces, rather than an intelligible order comprised of natural things with an internal directionality. Francis Bacon, not incidentally Hobbes' employer mentor for a time, dismissed Aristotelian entelechy, that sense that the, the organism has an interior purposefulness and direction, as being, quote, sterile as a consecrated virgin. <laughs> not a Catholic sentiment, <laughs> obviously. A sentiment that for Spemann reveals the design at the heart of modern science, to gain total mastery over nature, an endeavor that entails a prior elimination of natural ends. As Spemann explains, if a person wants to make whatever he pleases out of a thing, then the question about what the thing itself is ordered to can only be a hindrance. Enter Cezanique. Recall its claim. There is no medical need to have a period. And recall the tone of indignation of the actresses. Reduce the human being to discrete parts with no meaningful connection to one another, 
And you can not only eliminate your fertility, but also the pesky monthly reminder that you are a fertile being. Subordinate your body and its rhythms to your desires, and you're good to go. Look how much fun those ladies were having. I love the, the DJ in particular. I never had that much fun. I mean, with all due respect to my husband. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. As a single woman, I never had that much fun. I never. Right. This logic bears a strong resemblance to that which animates industrial practices of many kinds. Strip mining, the use of DDT, the construction of CAFOs, or concentrated animal feeding operations. If you've seen Food, Inc., you'll know what I'm talking about. These practices assume that the natural world is not a delicate ecosystem with its own intelligibility and integrity, but rather an aggregation of discrete material parts that are, as far as meaning goes, mute. The Seasonique commercial approaches the body in a similar way and anticipates that its viewers will feel, feel similarly burdened by their fertility cycle, by the very way their body operates. Now this strikes me not only as curious, but also as troubling. If the body's natural rhythms are conceived of as below me or opposed to me, that is, as effecting a heteronomy from below, then I am a profoundly divided self, constricted at every turn by a kind of subpersonal bondage. My real self, my real I, is expressed by my desires and especially by my choices. These have little or nothing to do with my body. But this is effectively to bifurcate freedom and nature, to treat the human body, in the words of Veritatis Splendor, as a raw datum, devoid of any meaning and moral values, until freedom posits them. As a consequence, the encyclical continues, human nature and the body appear as presuppositions or preambles, materially necessary for freedom to make its choice, yet extrinsic to the person, the subject, and the human act. In a very real sense, this division of the person renders us homeless. But there is another possibility. What if the body were more than matter in motion? What if the body were more than stuff, stupid stuff as my kids might say? Would that change the way we relate to it? You might say, sure, but to perceive more than raw data in the human body and indeed in the whole natural world, one would have to show that matter can be purposeful and meaningful. And that, we might say, is a very tall order. Perhaps that's why Genesis begins the way it does. It says something to us about the very foundation of things. As if anticipating our query regarding matter and meaning, it replies that our suspicions about the material world being a random agglomeration of molecules signifying nothing is unfounded. Why? Because the world was created by an intelligent and loving and generous God. The first or Elohist creation story is a celebration of the created world insofar as God blesses each aspect of his handiwork with the simple but profound observation, it was good. In this pithy, triumphantly anti-Manichaean text, we find the most compelling foundation for an environmental ethics. And as the Elohist story continues, the most compelling foundation for an accurate anthropology, that is, an account of man. In elucidating this biblical anthropology, I will appeal to the exegesis found in Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. 
After God has created the non-human natural world, he creates man in a separate creative act that is uniquely preceded by what JP2 calls a solemn introduction. Let us, said he, make man in our image and likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is such a curious text. And this, so Genesis affirms, is a judge very good. In so doing, it underscores the distinctiveness of man, that is the human, as well as sexual difference. This suggests to John Paul II that there is a special dignity to being embodied as male and female, that being male and female is somehow intrinsic to bearing the imago Dei. The unique privilege of bearing the image of God as male and female is inseparably related to the fact that we were created by a Trinitarian God. The language of Genesis 126, what the Pope calls above the solemn introduction before the creation of man, hints at this unmistakably as it begins, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But to what are we, qua male and female, likened? To a God who is a loving communion of persons and whose communion reveals the importance of activity, receptivity, and generativity. The father, the first person and active principle of the Trinity, so to speak, begets the son in an outpouring of divine love, while the son, the second person and receptive principle of the Trinity, great, gratefully receives his being from the father, and the mutual love they share in turn generates the Holy Spirit. All of which shows what the sixth century church father, Pseudo-Dionysius, calls the self-diffusiveness of divine love. It pours itself out, generating new life. This brings us back to Genesis, the very record of God's self-diffusive and generous love. For it was out of love and for love that the world was created. And according to John Paul II, the human person testifies to this design for love precisely in his body. The body matters. It has an intrinsic meaning relevant to the moral life. What the Pope observes is that the body's design reveals man's intrinsic sociability and vocation to love. To make this case, he again goes back to the text, this time to the second or Yahwist creation account. In this story, the Pope is especially struck by what he calls the original solitude of the first man, Adam, meaning human. Adam is unique among the creation. He is vested with the power of reason and self-awareness, which enables him to name the animals, beings with whom he shares the earth, but from whom he is importantly different. Adam enjoys a direct relationship with God. He converses with him, responds to his initiative, and is singularly capable of forging a covenant with his creator. There is thus an important sense in which the first man, that is the human as such, is alone, inhabiting a distinctive niche in the chain of being that is revealed to him through his observation of the visible world and his subsequent awareness that he is embodied in a way different from all the rest. Though material, Adam's body separates him from the other members of creation. Unlike the other animals, he is a person, and it is precisely through the body that his personhood is instantiated. 
He is, in the classical formulation, a substantial union of body and soul, and in this he is unique. This is the first and positive meaning of what the Pope calls original solitude. The second meaning stems from God's recognition that Adam, the human being, needs a partner like himself. With a tender awareness, God acknowledges, it is not good that the man should be alone. I want to make him a help similar to himself. And so God casts a deep sleep upon the man and, taking one of his ribs, fashions a suitable helpmate, woman. The differentiation into male and female, that is, the introduction of sexual difference, is directly intended by God. And it is experienced by Adam, now male, as a joyful discovery. Upon seeing Eve embodied like him in recognizably human form, different from all the other animals, and yes, different from him, he rejoices. This time, she is flesh from my flesh and bone from my bones. Significantly, it is not in the first place her soul but her body that makes manifest the likeness Eve bears to Adam and their fittingness for one another. The great significance of this differentiation is immediately apparent. Adam and Eve are made for each other. They are made for union, a fact disclosed by the body. The design of the male body would make no sense without the female body, and vice versa. Think, for instance, of the sperm and the ovum. Neither would be intelligible without the other. This is profoundly significant. Maleness and femaleness are correlative phenomena by design. Therefore, Genesis explains, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is marriage, a one flesh union, which, like the love found in the Trinity, is designed to be fruitful, or to use Dionysus's language noted above. I'm just laughing because I had a professor in graduate school who could never pronounce the name Pseudo-Dionysius. He was a German, and he would always say, Pseudo-Dionysius, <laughs> which I just did. I mean, <clears throat> so uh, to use Pseudo-Dionysius's language, I just did it again, <laughs> noted above, to be self-diffusive and generative. So this one flesh union that is by its nature designed to be self-diffusive and generative. The uniquely complementary bodies of husband and wife enable a union so intimate that it can be the event of a miracle, the creation of new life, the two truly becoming one in the identity of the child. This too is recognized by Genesis and is given a narrative place of prominence. In the first creation account, after God makes man in his image as male and female, he bestows a blessing upon them and enjoins the couple to be fruitful and multiply. This is not an afterthought. It's not accidental to their creation as male and female persons. It is an essential purpose for their <clears throat> sexual differentiation. Moreover, the command to be fruitful does not impose an onerous duty as if the creator anticipated the original sin and preemptively punished it. Though if you could see the, our playroom right now, you might wonder about that. <clears throat> or the sleep deprivation. But I know the Tomcos endure and we endure. Instead, it's the extension of a blessing, one that recognizes the creation of children by a man and a woman as an expression of similitude to God himself. Genesis thus recognizes that man is intrinsically social designed for interpersonal communion through his body, a body that is inscribed with a nuptial or spousal meaning. 
In the context of the marriage covenant, the spousal meaning of the body requires a total gift of self, body and soul. As the Pope explains, this gift of self is manifest by the objective language of the nuptial body that in the conjugal embrace naturally conveys an extraordinary message of love. I love you so much, say the spouses to each other, that I am willing to give myself to you totally. This is profound stuff. Um, I love you so much, say the spouses to each other, that I am willing to give myself to you totally to become one flesh with you forever in the creation of a new human being destined for eternity. That is extraordinary. I mean, we have three kids. That, that's, that, is, what, that is what we're for. <clears throat> this bears directly on the first contested question I mentioned at the start of the lecture, contraception. Uh, though there's been a lot of talk in the news about the HHS mandate and, and contraception as contravening Catholic Church teaching, there's been very little explication of the rationale behind church teaching. So I want to say a few words about that. <clears throat> if the union of husband and wife in the sexual embrace conveys a message of mutual self-gift, then contraception overrides this language with a contrary vocabulary, one of limitation holding back, even rejection. To contracept is to attempt to render love incapable of bearing its natural fruit. But it not only offends against the procreative significance of the marital act, it also offends against the unitive significance. Barrier methods, and I think the name itself is revealing, most obviously inhibit interpersonal union. <clears throat> I think that we forget what a striking offense against unity something like the condom is. And as I was thinking about the lecture, I thought it might be helpful to imagine how offensive it would be if our spouse insisted that before we kiss, we put a Ziploc bag over our head. Or at least I, I do, right? Or one of us does. Wouldn't have to be both, but one of us has to, has to wear a plastic bag. I mean, right? Uh, just because it, it occurs in the southern hemisphere, I don't think we think about that. But even the anovulatory pill, right, whether seasonique or some other variety, or a spermicide, impedes marital union because it denies who the spouses are and devalues what they give. It's a false unity premised upon the presentation of the wife, at least temporarily, as sterilized and the husband as giving his spouse a toxic substance that needs to be chemically attacked. But this is not how we should give a gift or receive a gift, especially the gift of oneself. If the body were of no account, if it were a subpersonal dimension of human existence, then the question of contraception would not be the weighty matter that it is. And I think it's worth noting here that up until 1930, the, the pan-Christian world, all the Christian community, was opposed to contraception. Uh, so that's, that's an impressively long amount of time. Um, in 1930, the Church of England carved out a very narrow exception for the use of contraception by married couples. Um, under severe circumstances, right, grave uh, crises, health and, and the like. Within one generation, virtually all of the Protestant world had taken to, uh, had considered contraception non-controversial. It was no longer a matter of scrutiny in moral theology. And, and obviously uh, Catholics were not too far behind that in the sense that most Catholics consider this teaching inconsequential. Um, but I think it's absolutely central to an understanding of the person and of marriage. 
So if the body were of no account, as, as many, if not most, uh, at least American Christians do, then the question of contraception would not be the weighty matter that it is. But in fact, we have a sacramental vision of the world where the physical order is privileged to make visible spiritual and divine realities. And a contraceptive act of intercourse cannot accurately convey the reality of life-giving Trinitarian love. Nor can same-sex couplings. Two men or two women cannot achieve the interpersonal communion that marriage is because marriage requires a union of persons. And persons are not simply spirits or souls, but embodied spirits. And the kind of union that marriage is, is generative, life-giving, fertile by its very nature. Homosexual couplings, by contrast, are sterile by nature and cannot unite the persons. Same-sex marriage is therefore impossible. Um, even if the positive law were to change on this, if let's say the court were to overturn state law in what, 43 out of 50 states, and, and state by judicial decree that, that same-sex marriage is valid, and that's the standing law of the land, it's not possible. That would be illusory. Importantly, it's not because of a want of sincerity or virtue or goodness on the part of the individuals concerned, but because of the nature of human personhood and the nature of interpersonal communion. To replace the conception of marriage as a one flesh union, generative in kind, with one premised on desire and consent alone, as the advocates of same-sex marriage do, entails a deeply fragmented vision of the person. It divides the desiring self and the choosing self from the sexual body, which in its very design is complementary, male to female. In so doing, it affects a kind of homelessness of the spirit and desires and renders a judgment that the body is not meaningful. Its design can be overridden at will. But the complementary sexually differentiated body is meaningful. Its design is born of the intelligence and love of a God who is so generous that he created the world out of nothing and gave to us, these poor curious creatures, the capacity to convey nothing less than sacred meaning in our very flesh. Let's return in closing to the question that so piqued my interest as I sat in the obstetrician's office and lo and behold became the occasion for a university lecture. <laughs> who says? Who says I can't render myself sterile and suppress the signs that remind me of my fertility? Or relatedly, who says that I can't exchange sexual intimacy with whomever I desire? You. The you that is a harmony of body and spirit and whose existence is very good. Thank you. And we have time for questions. I'm very happy to entertain questions. And this is a friendly forum, so please feel free to disagree with me. I know all of my law students do. <laughs> I took a poll. Yes? Say someone comes up to you and says that you're a bigot for thinking this way. Yeah. So you have like a 
not 45 minute, but like one minute response. Do <laughs> 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 you go back to contraception and the purpose of sexuality, or like how would you have like a two minute conversation? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I, I, this is pertinent. Um, in my extended family, I have, have uh, folks who are struggling with homosexuality personally. So it's not, it's not something that I treat as a casual matter, okay? So I'm, uh, I hope that my response would be motivated by a concern, just as I've been puzzling this through with respect to people I love. Um, I would say in the first place, uh, I wouldn't invoke Genesis. I wouldn't make an appeal to Genesis. I would make an appeal to the body. <clears throat> and whether, whether there is uh, a, a compelling case to be made that the body has an integrity of its own and that it's your body that has an integrity of its own that is violated when one separates one's desires and choices from the design of their own body. All right, and so uh, sexual intimacy cannot achieve the, the purposefulness that is evident in the body. That would be a first tack. What do, you, what do you think? Do you think, how do you think the person might respond? Right, but I think focused um, not on sort of what might seem immediately as abstract uh, terms from natural law, uh, but, but focused very concretely on the person and the nature of the body, whether the body has a meaning that we can perceive, whether there's an intelligibility to it. I think that's a powerful argument. And if we don't reverence that, Right, in a way that we're, I think we're better now than we were 30 years ago, thanks to people like Rachel Carson. Um, if we don't reverence the body in the way that we're beginning to think about reverencing the natural world as a, a really delicate ecosystem, with its own, um, as Shpemon would put it, sort of species-specific internal principle of motion and directionality, then we're really, we're really in for big trouble. Right, so just as Rachel Carson was reacting to the, the widespread use of DDT in agribusiness and showing how the whole ecosystem was affected, I think you can make a, a really compelling case that, um, that acts of sexual intimacy that do not respect the body's own design are, can be dangerous right, to oneself, but they can also be frustrating because they're not fulfilling what the clear uh, tell us or purposefulness of the body is. Other questions? Yes. of it, I think, is um, sort of, a, you, you'd have to give a humble recognition that the Cartesianism in the culture 
is due in at least uh, one of its respects to a kind of angelism that you would have encountered in, let's say, in scholasticism and a rationalism there. So in a certain sense, we're, we're reaping the fruits of our own uh, errors or, or uh, improper emphases. Um, but then secondly, I would say, and I, I actually did this in a review. I wrote a rev review recently of a book by a woman named Tamara Metz, who makes the case for getting the state out of the marriage business entirely. It's called Untying the Knot. It's a clever title, Untying the Knot, Making the Case for the Separation of the State and Marriage. Um, and she acknowledges from the start her indebtedness to queer theorists and their recognition of the importance of the body. But there's not a single treatment of the body in the whole book. So there's a, there's a really curious elevation or celebration of the body and a celebration of liberation without any attention to the body, to, to how it actually operates. Um, so I would simply say, again, sort of in the same vein that I responded to this gentleman, that we need to pay attention and, and listen to the natural operation of our bodies. And that that makes a, uh, that says something powerful about the ways we should unite, and the ways we can unite, and the ways we shouldn't. So, any other questions? Yes. Um, I guess some people would try to defend contraception within marriage, yeah. with um, like some of the extreme examples, like that show, I guess now it's like 23, 24 kids in county, but because that couple is opposed to contraception, even though they aren't married. Right. So for those who are married, yeah. what would your uh, response be to that? I would appeal to the concept of JP2 articulated in a book called Love and Responsibility, that, that the enterprise of marriage and family life entails not only love, but also responsibility, which is a, a kind of uh, stewardship of love. And that God is not, in the context of Catholic Church teaching, God is not asking you to have 30 children um, he's asking you to be open to life uh, in, a, in a, an exceptionally generous way um, and, and in a responsible way, okay? And that's why the church permits the use of natural family planning to be sensitive to the needs of your family, your resources, your emotional and physical state, um, but also to be reverent toward the, the rhythm of your own body and the language that it speaks, right? So there's a, there's a difference um, there's a difference between actively rejecting your fertility, acting against new life, and not taking those steps to avail yourself of the gift of new life. That's, that might seem like a subtle distinction, but I think it's real. And it, it's interesting on this score that uh, natural family planning couples have a very, very rare, uh, there are very rare instances of divorce. The, the, the rate, I just read this recently, is about 1% one to two percent versus close to 50 percent of marriages at large. That strikes me as a really important sociological fact that should prompt some investigation. No, which isn't to say that the use of NFP would be a single variable and determining variable. It's, it's obviously associated with other values, but it's, it's an impressive one. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you so much, a wonderful lecture. Uh, one of the justices today, I can't remember which one, probably not Justice Alito, uh, used the counterexample of the sterile married couple as if a sterile heterosexual married couple 
somehow is a proof uh, against the kind of argument of the natural co-creative aspect of, of marriage. Right. And that kind of argument gets a lot of traction. It does. Um, another argument which gets a lot of traction is the statistical probability argument. Uh-huh. So there's, there's a statistical probability of conception given the normal cycle of fertility. Right. Um, our drug of choice here changes that somewhat, right? We go from 12 to 4, and we go from this, this chance of right. conception to that chance of conception. Um, those sorts of arguments seem to create so much traction because they seem to think that the body itself is open to not embracing the language. That, that's interesting, yeah. The first objection springs from the nominalism that is part and parcel of the American mind. We're nominalists. We think of discrete individuals. But we're, we're not, in fact, discrete individuals. We're, we're members of a species that has a certain kindness to it. Um, and so men and women, a husband and a wife, are by nature fertile, right, of their essence. Accidentally, they might be sterile. Um, and I think we should sort of pay attention to the, the experience of sterility among married couples as a source of great anguish. They perceive that there's something is amiss here, something is profoundly amiss, something that should be here isn't. Uh, homosexual couples, I think, can also experience great anguish, but it's not because something should be here that isn't. And that's a crucial distinction. You can't make the case that two, the, the bodies of two men somehow should be procreative in nature. Um, the anus is not a receptive orifice, and, and the rectum is not designed for the, the welcoming right, of the sperm. And I think that's a crucial point to make. No one makes this argument publicly. I think that's probably the first time that statement has ever been uttered in Bartley. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in health services, but not in Bartley. Um, but that's not, I mean, that, there's nothing offensive about saying that. It's just to recognize it descriptively that that's not the, the sort of genius of that system in our body. And to make it so is to violate its integrity. And I think that's why gay men are subject to, to such grievous suffering and, and uh, are susceptible to you know, horrible diseases, the likes of which no one should ever suffer. But, but we've got to pay attention to that the, the body is communicating a language and it has an integrity of its own. That's very important. And again, no one makes this argument. No one is talking about this. But if the body, to go back to Christina's point, if the body is important, I think we need to talk about that. As to the second issue, the probabilities argument, it's still the case that you can see that the end, the telos of the union is procreation. Right? That's why the little guys swim like they do. You know, I mean, that's, there is clearly a kind of positive movement there. And the fact that it can't be achieved every cycle um, isn't a proof against the nature of the thing. I mean, sort of, it, it would be analogous roughly to the, the case that man is a rational being. Well, how can you make that point when for half of his life he sleeps? I mean, we don't, but for, <laughs> it's more like an eighth of our life we sleep. But, well, because he's by nature rational. Um, when he's sleeping, he's not actively using his, his rational faculty. But he is by nature rational. Any other questions? Yes. Um, Gee, thanks for this. 
it's poignant that you're you're giving this lecture tonight. Uh, you know, on the, on the day the Supreme Court is entertaining these arguments. Right. And it seems that we know something is going to give in some way. It, it seems maybe yeah. not. I don't know. But yeah. But um, so if in fact in that sense of the term we're on the losing side of that argument um, yeah. as a church, then I mean some Catholic voices have articulated not recently, but. That, that maybe untying the knot is the best way to go, that we have a rich and full sacramental understanding of marriage, yeah. that maybe we just don't have a dog in the, in the political hunt there. Yeah, so I wonder yeah. if you could say a few words just in the direction of, I know it's a longer topic, but what the public good yeah. of, of marriage is and, and why, why this teaching that you've expounded so, so clearly and so eloquently um, is an argument that we should make in a public way. Yeah and not just in a ecclesial and sacramental way. That's no. right. Oh, it's yeah. a really good question. A couple of reasons. Um, the first is because marriage is a natural good. Right? It's not simply a spiritual good. So the church recognizes non-sacramental marriages as good and valid natural marriages. Um, so it is, it, it's under the provenance of this, the state. If you take the state to be an agency that is supposed to foster human well-being and natural human goods. Now that's a contested question, right? So, so I would be approaching this issue from an Aristotelian cum classical Republican perspective, not from procedural liberalism, and that's crucial, right? You, you give a very different account that way. Um, the second response would be that the welfare of children is at stake. And the state has a compelling interest in ensuring that the children know and are with, to the extent possible, the ones who gave them life right, for their own identity, sense of meaning, sense of connection to history and tradition and ancestors, that whole sort of rich tapestry that, that makes us the social beings that we are. Um, and it's, it's not accidental to my mind that there are certain logical consequences that follow from the adoption of the premises of the same-sex marriage advocates, so that such that marriage is based on consent and desire alone, right? Those are the, the two norms. One of the logical consequences of that is that in principle, you have no ground now to oppose polyamorous relationships, right? because you could make the same kind of case that these are based on desire and consent. These are adults. They have exchanged these affections, and uh, they have pledged themselves in some way. You could make that case. In fact, there was a, a statement fairly recently by 300 um, LBGT, LGBT uh, and allied scholars called Beyond Same-Sex Marriage, where they acknowledge this very candidly, that the, the move to same-sex marriage is one step. They want to push beyond that for recognizing polygamy, polyandry, and, and various permutations thereof. Um, there's a, an NYU professor, Judith Stacy, who's advocating small group marriages. Okay. There's no principled way to argue against that once you have divorced marriage from the body uh, and from its meaning. I, I think they, there's only a practical constraint that can you imagine having 10 sets of in-laws? I mean, <laughs> that, that enough would be, that's a, a practical constraint that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty compelling, right? And I love my in-laws, but my goodness. Um, imagine navigating Thanksgiving and Christmas with 10. Um, the state has an interest, it seems to me, in guarding against that kind of chaos. I think that's really chaotic. Let me give you another related uh, evidence from a law that actually passed. 
The state of Massachusetts adopted same-sex marriage in 2003. Two years ago, the state legislature, in an attempt to eradicate gender distinctions in the law, issued a directive to the Massachusetts Department of Education stating that the public schools would, with all due speed, try to eradicate gender distinctions in, in every area of school life. Um, so much so that a student, irrespective of his anatomical sex, could declare himself or herself to be the opposite gender. And the school would have to comply with that. So in terms of the use of their bathrooms, the use of their locker rooms, um, the way the teacher responded to the student, the way other students respond to one another, if, the, if it's, let's say, a, a young boy, a 13-year-old boy, if he decided that he wanted to be a she, in certain areas, the school also would have to have some flexibility. So if he wanted to be a he in one venue, we have to treat him as a he. If in another venue he wanted to be a she, we'd have to honor that. Um, and, the, and any student not exceeding to that would be subject to disciplinary action. It strikes me that that's a direct logical extension now in place in law of the principle that our bodies are not dispositive for our identity. They're, it's effected a fundamental break between our bodies and our conception of ourselves. The state has an interest in not doing that and it seems to me upholding the, the, the traditional ground of marriage is a really important way for the state to make a public statement about the unity of the self, right? And um, those, those sort of consequences, they're not a kind of the product of a paranoid dystopic mind. This is real, this happened. And, they, and many advocates, high profile Ivy League professors are making the case that same-sex marriage precisely will undermine marriage and its traditional norms, permanence, exclusivity, Etc. And that seems to me to create a huge problem for social life, for children, and for the identity of ourselves. I want to just bring this back with a kind of personalist accent. It's the parties themselves that I think are undermined. So, yes. Uh, thanks for talking. Uh, you might recall that uh, yeah, the first time we met, perhaps, uh, we, we discussed some of these matters, I think. Uh, At Civitas. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's kind of a nice bookend. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But, um, and you're, you folks are expecting. We are indeed. So this is timely. So I actually wanted to, um, since people have been so friendly to you, uh, push back a little bit yeah. and uh, see how you would expand on the kind of uh, natural law approach that you're taking. Right. Um, and this, I think, is a common uh, question that gets raised. Uh, where that maybe the um, idea of honoring the body that you're discussing might sort of prove too much. Okay. Seems like we uh, do things that uh, don't seem to fit with our bodily rhythms. Sometimes I can think of mundane examples like, you know, I spend all day reading, so I really have to get this paper done, and, and I got a headache, and I take some Motrin, but I don't feel too bad about that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, I admire people who go on hunger strikes. Uh, in certain instances, that doesn't seem to be great for their bodies. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it seems to be resisting certain natural uh, rhythms uh, and so on. Um, and and uh, so you could say they're not honoring their bodies. So how would you respond to this word that maybe you're proving too much? That's a really good question. Um, I think with respect to the sexual powers, 
it would be difficult to make that case, that somehow you can deliberately act against the sexual powers. That's not to say um, sublimate them right, for the sake of something greater. Um, so for instance, the consecrated life within Catholicism. You're not directly using the sexual powers in a sexual act, in a marital act. But there's not, two things. One, there's not a direct action against them, a kind of counter language. And two, it seems to me, you still have maleness and femaleness expressed with respect to, um, as it were, spousal goods. So that Christ is the bridegroom and the bride is Christ. And when a man becomes a priest, there's a really profound sense in which he's marrying the church, being the bridegroom to the church, acting in with, as I referenced in the Trinity, the active principle, and with a consecrated woman, a religious sister, for instance, um, in some of the old uh, vow ceremonies, the the uh, would they be postulants or novices? They would they would wear white. They would wear uh, bridal gowns to signify this marriage. But the, the sexual powers are sublimated in the service of something higher, but they're not directly contravened. And I think that's an important part of a response. Yeah. Yes. Jeannie, I have a question that's a little bit related to Jesse's. It refers to um, your summary of John Paul II's uh, Mago Day argument that you yeah, yeah. um, summarized so eloquently in your speech, in your lecture. <coughs> I whether there are risks involved with moving the paradigm from the way that we image, we are images of God, yeah. primarily in our ability to reason, to the way that primarily that we are Imago Dei is in our gender complementarity. There's a, I think, not tonight, but I have heard in other venues, yeah. uh, impulse to productivity on that end that I find really troubling. Yeah. That's so interesting. What struck me in rereading Genesis for this talk is um, the fact that the text goes from man, let us make man in our own image, male and female, he created them. It's not, right, to use the, the old scholastic term, it's not that the person is, um, what's the old formulation, a substance of a rational nature. That, that's there, I think it's implicit, but it's an embodied substance of a rational nature. And it strikes me that you have to combine those things. It actually connects back up with your question. Um, so the, the approach to one's fertility has to be rational. Right? We're, we're persons, we're embodied spirits, an embodied rationality. And I, I think you risk things on either end. So I think that's a helpful corrective. And that's why, incidentally, that's why the Pope sketches out the first meaning of original solitude as pertaining to man simply, right, male and female, as human persons, it's being human that elevates us, or that it is a, a, uh, an elevated status in the chain of being. But that very person is always right, instantiated in a body. So I think that's a helpful corrective. So I would say you're an embodied substance of a rational nature. Does that, does that respond? Do you want to follow up at all? OK. <laughs> Not so much. OK. Other questions? We have time for one last question. 
Yes, go ahead, Mary. Um, I really enjoyed your talk. Thank you. So I, I worry, though, that the ship has sailed culturally on these arguments. Yeah. That we are so deep into certain ways of thinking that yeah. the kind of reason to which you are appealing is just not intelligible to people. And, and the question is, do you have any thoughts about what the church should do in a world where the type of reason which the church richly understands, but which is clearly completely not seeable to other people, right? Um, how they should navigate the world? Okay, that's big. I mentioned the fact that um, I have two family members wrestling with this issue, and I had a, an extended conversation with one of them recently, and I was troubled by the fact that in, this was, by the way, um, a, a first conversation for us, but that it didn't seem to register, didn't seem to move the person at all. Um, and then I, I spoke to another family member who just counseled that I hang in there, that I, that I continue this dialogue and that I just make the case. And I think it's similar, Mary, to the question of contraception. Um, contraception seems to have been a, a, a dead issue, right? For Protestants, not even on their radar screen, for Catholics, inconsequential. But you'd be amazed at how much interest there is now on, on, in natural family planning and on the question of contraception. So I think there is movement both in Protestant circles and in Catholic circles for a reexamination of this issue. That would be in micro uh, a way to respond to the larger cultural problem. But I think another dimension of this is that people simply don't talk about it in a way that is comprehensive. And I think just for the church to start there, in the pews, in the schools, and then in conversations between Catholic and non-Catholic citizens, just for people to lay out the argument that simply has not been done. Partly because our state of uh, citizenship right now is so privatized, and people take offense even in raising these questions. But I think if we just hang in there and make the arguments, and on that score, let me just reference quickly uh, an observation by Maggie Gallagher, who's been one of the um, vocal defenders of a traditional conception of marriage. Uh, she was interviewed, and the person raised a similar question about how, how the push for same-sex marriage is, is a juggernaut. I mean, it seems like this irresistible force, um, inevitable. And she said, I don't do inevitability. She's very, very saucy. She said, I don't do inevitability. The communists were talking that same way in 1980. And within 10 years, the communist world was in pieces, which is not to say democratic capitalism was somehow right, uh, an unproblematic solution, but simply that, that the inevitability argument, I think, doesn't work. And it especially doesn't work if you have a Catholic conception of history and the, the interplay of freedom and grace. So I think just make, make the argument have the conversations. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.